Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steyer-Blondie. This is Roland Ozebal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Price. It's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Roberts, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is David Frangioni, CEO and publisher of Modern Drummer Magazine. So excited about our new podcast, The Modern Drummer Podcast. This weekly podcast will bring Modern Drummer to life. Sit back and enjoy fresh, fun, and insightful conversations with today's top drummers, producers, musicians, beat makers, and craftsmen. Whether you're a professional, a hobbyist, drummer, musician, programmer, producer, or just love music, this show is for you. Every other week, the Modern Drummer Podcast will feature world-renowned producer, songwriter, and drummer, Narda Michael Walden. Narda Michael Walden's Upbeat is featured exclusively on the Modern Drummer Podcast. Uh, okay, it's a real treat for me to interview Gavin Harrison. Uh, he's a notice, but I've been a fan of his for a long, long time, ever since um, I discovered the Rhythmic, Illusion, Rhythmic Perspectives and Rhythmic Illusions books in high school and had no idea what the heck was going on. So, Gavin, thank you for taking the time to sit with me for a minute to dig into some things. Um, how are you doing? Yeah, good. All good here. Is... um. Is, has your life been severely impacted from the pandemic other than not being able to tour, but is you, are you still able to work? I see you have a nice studio there. So is that your primary workspace these days? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, apart from not playing live, my life hasn't really changed at all. Mm. In fact, if anything, I've been working more in this pandemic than I normally would, you know, in a period between tours. Right. Well, I mean, it seems like you're on, showing up on a lot of records. Um, were these records that came about because of the pandemic, or were they kind of already happening um, prior uh, to that? No, I don't think any of them were because of the pandemic. 
Um, I've normally got a few kind of session projects waiting for me when I come back off a tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's various writing partners I've got that, you know, I catch up with from time to time. And so, I mean, it's given me a, a, a focus because, you know, there's been no live shows. Normally I'm home for, you know, a couple of months or six weeks or something like that. So I've normally got a period in which I can work in the studio. But having this open-ended period of working in the studio, plus the chance to really practice, which I miss a lot when I'm away, um, has been rather nice, actually. That was going to be one of my first questions. What are you working on? What is what is the playing objectives for Gavin Harrison in 2021? Uh, from, well, from a drum set point of view, you know, I've got no end of things that uh, I could certainly improve and all sorts of exercises and things that I do, not really like a, um, a regimented kind of thing, but from time to time I'll work on certain aspects. Sometimes I'll just watch a, um, I don't know, I'll watch the news on my computer or watching a film or something, and then I'll, I've got my pad here and I'll just play, you know, just aimlessly pretty much just working on dexterity, I guess. Um, On the drum set, I do a lot of um, kind of improvising and experimenting, looking for new ideas, looking for new possible um, patterns that could lead to some uh, writing possibilities. Mm. Um, You know, I'm in a couple of bands where I can pretty much play whatever I want. So I'm always looking for, sometimes when you're improvising, you play something and you think, oh, that's kind of nice. I better write this down or record it somehow because there's some good possibilities. Some things I've never played before. That's what can happen if you're really improvising. You just stumble across something and you surprise yourself and think, oh, hang on, I like this, what's this? And you, you can develop it. Normally I just get a pencil out and I write it out. Mm -hmm. Um, the only problem with that is when you look at it a couple of years later and I've got stacks and stacks of, you know, written notes, you can't really remember the tempo that you did it at or some of the attitude that you put into it. And that's kind of important when you just play the notes that are written on the page. It isn't always clear that you can't remember the kind of attitude that you put into it. Um, so sometimes it helps to get a little, I don't know, get your iPhone out or a Zoom thing and, and just record yourself, film yourself. No matter how terrible the quality of the recording, watching yourself play, uh, you can then remember, well, you remember the tempo, but you can also remember some of the movements that were inspiring that particular groove or that particular pattern. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm looking for real micro um micro licks it could be just a a movement that is you know a bass drum a flam between the tom and the snare going on to the bell of the ride and i think oh that's nice now that one tiny movement you know i could use that micro lick pretty much anywhere in any tempo it's just a nice voicing the way the bass drum snare drum flam and tom and end on a ride uh, the way that sounds, I think, oh, that's really nice. I could maybe put that inside 
a fill that I'm doing and then that just happens to go inside and along with lots of other little micro fills um you know some of them are just just the way that you brush the hi-hat in a triplet fashion or there's a million of these little micro things that you do it kind of makes up your personality and your sound in a way because your fills have some of those signature mini tiny little fractional licks i'm not talking about working on a whole four four bar drum fill that you've worked out and then every time you're playing at a certain tempo you think oh i can do that fill that i've worked out i think i got rid of that mentality about 25 30 years ago so the little micro movements are much more interesting because you can you can put four or five of them together or just remember to use one of them and then the rest of the fill is completely improvised but you know that bit sounds really nice so when i'm improvising on the drums in a practice session sometimes i'll find a little micro fill that i think oh i've never played that before and i quite like it let me see how where i could put it and where i could start it if it starts on a one if it starts on a on the second 16th the third 16th the fourth 16th parts of a triplet you know it will all have a different feel depending on where you start that little micro fill you don't always need to start it on a one or on a on a quarter note you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh, two follow-ups for that first um how long is the incubation period for you when you get the idea you practice it you write it down maybe record it maybe explore it for a bit but then it actually just shows up as part of your vocabulary part of it's part of the problem is if i can remember it (laughs) because i could be you know i could be on a on a gig and i'm thinking right i'm going to play a fill oh what were those things i was working on last week i can't remember them and then the fill's gone Mm. Uh, some of them, I guess, have stuck more over the years. Um, I found uh, on my birthday last year, I sat down at the drums and just played something I've never, ever played before. And it's, um, it's a herter, which is 230 seconds followed by 216s, which I'm sure many of our listeners know. It sounds like this, if you can hear that. So... If you play that with your feet, so bass drum, hi-hat, bass drum, hi-hat. So it will go bass drum, hi-hat, bass drum, hi-hat. So two 30-second notes followed by two 16s. And that's, of course, a group of three three 16s or a dotted eighth note, however you want to look at it, which always goes nice across 4-4 or any other time signature, actually. And then I thought, what if I could play a herter with my hands between the bell of the ride and the cross stick, but displaced. So I'll start it on the second 16th. So I'll play two herters, one between the feet, one between the hands, four different sound sources, and but the hands are starting a 16th note late. And I played it, and I thought that was quite funny. And then about 18 months later, I was recording a track for Antoine Fafard, and there was a little solo section, and I suddenly remembered it, and I thought, wow, I think I found the perfect place for that <laughs> that thing I played on my last birthday. So that took about 18 months for it to mm. come out. Okay. Do you remember which track that was? I heard it, and I meant to make a note of it, and I forgot to. 
Um, I can't remember the track. It's one of the little solo sections. Um, I can't remember. I think okay. I played solo in every song, but um, it's a very satisfying thing to play, actually. And it was incredibly hard to play slowly. I could play it quickly, and then uh, I wrote it out. And then I thought, let me see if I can play it really slow, because one day someone's going to say, hey, can you slow that right down for me? And <laughs> embarrassingly <laughs> enough, I might not be able to. Something's just kind of, you just can't play really slow. So anyway, it took me about a week of, you know, maybe five, ten minutes every day trying to play it super slow. Because with something like that, you can't concentrate on your feet and your hands at the same time. They've got, there's got to be some automation going on. And I've played that Herter pattern on double bass drum many, many times, but only at sort of that kind of speed. I don't really go, you know, I could probably play that with one foot. But at the faster speed, my feet could do that automatically, and then I could just concentrate on the hands and the displacement. And once you get that in that displacement, no, uh, there's only two notes that actually overlap. So it kind of goes one inside the other. It's a very satisfying thing to play. But um, yeah, it took me a while to, to be able to play it really slowly. Uh, you know, to, then I had to really learn it from scratch. Well, I'll guarantee our listeners that that is on the new record. I should probably plug it. The name of the new record is, where are we, where are we at here? It is Chemical Reactions, Gavin Harrison and Anton Fafard. I said his name right. Is that correct? That's Anton? Right. Yeah. Yep. That is definitely on there. I was listening to the whole record last night a few times, and I meant to make a note of that exact lick that you were talking about. I think it there might have go. been in Vision of a last orbit or a pair of a perfect four somewhere in one of those solo sections. I heard that. I'm like, oh, I got to bookmark that to figure out what the heck he's doing. <laughs> uh, the other follow-up before we dig further into the record, I have, um, you mentioned about improvisation as being your primary practice routine. How do you approach starting the improvisation to avoid the option overload and also not predetermining too much what you're working on. Like, what is your first step when you sit down? I, I don't, I mean, no, I just, I don't know. I just sit down, I pick up the sticks and just start playing. The improvisational part really doesn't take place till maybe a few moments later when you start to recognize something new. I mean, improvisation is a funny thing because what mostly what people are doing is playing things they've played before, maybe in a different order, maybe with a different voicing, but they're patterns that your hands and feet have done before. Now, true improvisation is the point where you, your ears suddenly recognize, oh, you've never played that before. Mm. That's the bit I'm trying to get to. I can also sit down and just, I guess it may be, a better word is noodle than improvise. And I can noodle for 20 minutes and not play anything new. But my mind is, um, you know, free to wander. Uh, it's not every day I sit down and play something that I've never played before in my life. But that is obviously the, um, 
the thing that you're trying to get to. That's the exciting part where you think, oh my God, I've never played that. As I did when I played the Herter over the Herter, I just sat down one day and it just came to me like, oh, why don't you try this over this? Sometimes it comes to me when I'm out riding my bicycle, I might think of a, of a rhythmic idea or a polyrhythmic idea. And I think, oh, I've never thought about that before. That's an interesting way of getting into it. You know, sometimes it's nice to start with a concept. I remember Joe Zawinul saying his advice to one of his drummers at one point was, play 16s on the hi-hat and then hit the snare drum, but think like a boxer. And I thought, oh, that's a really good, that's a really good idea. I know exactly what you mean. Just randomly hit the snare drum, but with meaningful, um, with a with a meaningful path to it. Mm. So I like thinking of concepts that will, you know, push me into a mental space that I haven't been in before. I think at this point I've gone a long way past thinking in terms of rudiments. I, I almost never think of rudiments. I surely am. I mean, if you examine every single thing any drummer plays, you could break it into a rudiment. It's a single, it's a double, it's a flam, it's a paradiddle, it's a inverted paradiddle. But I don't actually start or think of, you know, stickings or, or rudiments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I have to have that discussion with young students all the time. Like you want to get to that level of your heroes, but you have to put in the time with the rudiments so then you can forget <laughs> and then util- utilize them properly. That whole quest yeah. for fluency is so frustrating. And I have to constantly remind my students, like, just be patient, put in the work, <laughs> you'll get there. <laughs> yeah, they are just tools, you know, they are just mm-hmm. tools that when you are in a good headspace, your hands will perform in a way that you're imagining. You don't think about how you're holding the sticks or, you know, if you're doing a, a, a molar grip or I don't think of any of those things. I'm trying to, hopefully my hands can just completely follow where my brain's going. They'll just do, do their magic on their own. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, let's dig into the, the record a little bit more. Um, the opening cut. Well, first of all, this record, um, for anyone listening, check it out. It's got, again, it's called Chemical Reactions by Anton Fafard. It's a mix of symphonic music with drum set on two tracks, but the first six tracks, I think it's mostly string quartet with drum set and some extra voices. Um, yeah, very unique. Yeah. How was this music presented to you? Um, I thought it was interesting that in the credits it says drums mixed and performed by Gavin Harrison. Mm. So you're, you were supplying a finished track i guess that was being put onto his tracks as well how was it put together he sent me uh demos which were written with kind of midi strings and actually there was a there was a midi piano in there as well and then we got after i did the drums and he redid the bass then we got a, a cellist and then we got a violin and viola player and we went on in that fashion so it was always starting with the original composition, a very sort of, um, well, he did, he did record a bass, 
so you know I had enough to play to that I could think how you know I could hear how the whole picture was going to be put together mm-hmm. um so yeah I mean trying to play drums with a string quartet is an unusual place to be and I like being in unusual places because it might make me play in a different way you know no one's more bored with my drumming than I am I've had to live with it you know since the beginning so when you are presented with an interesting rhythmical challenge you might start playing things you've never played before or playing in a way that you've never played before so you know there's not much to there's not much um recorded material of drum set with string quartet to draw upon if you're going to play r&b or funk there's a whole world of um reference out there that you know you can go and listen to going way back decades of funk and r&b music it's quite established how the drums kind of function in music like that but it's not very clear in orchestral and um, string quartet music. So, yeah, you feel like you're walking on, um, you know, virgin snow. And uh, as long as you've got a good sense of does this work, you know, it might be a very flash, interesting drum part, but does it actually work with the music and does it sonically fit well with the instruments? That's what I'm really interested in. And that's why I mix my own drums because uh, the idea and the sound are kind of inseparable. I have in the past played on people's records where, you know, I had a certain mix of the drums. The drums were balanced in a certain way, especially with the live room. I've got a really big live room here. And then I've sent them all the tracks and they've mixed it in a way that I really, it doesn't represent what I played. And if I knew they were going to use that kind of mix, then I'd have probably played different. Mm. So the sound and the idea sort of becomes one thing. Mm -hmm. So I said to Antoine very early on, look, I want to send you just a finished stereo mix of the drums. I'm happy to tweak it all the way through the mixing process. I'm happy to, you know, tweak little things, but, this was the sound that I had in my head when I played. And if someone remixes it drastically, it won't be my intention. So that's why I mixed the drums. In fact, I've mixed my drums on a lot of projects in the last 10 years. Some people are more open to it than others. But um, I've got to say, I've never actually heard a mix engineer do a better mix than I did because I know exactly the details I want to bring out, and I know exactly the way that I played it. You know, if you're going to play with a big ambient drum sound, you're not going to fill the thing up with lots and lots of ghost notes, because they're going to get lost in an ambient drum sound. But then if a mix engineer cuts all the ambient mics away, well, then it's going to be a really simple part, and I probably wouldn't have played that way if I knew you were going for a dead, dry drum sound. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So part of the creative process of coming up with a drum part that fits with a string quartet or an orchestra is also designing, from an engineer's point of view, the way the drums are going to sit sonically with those instruments. 
you literally answered what I was going to ask you. I, I wrote a three prong, like a triangle of when I think of Gavin Harrison's sound and approach to the instrument, it's three pronged. It's sound, it's precision, and it's parts. So you essentially just defined that for me. It's all one thing, sound, precision, and parts. The precision side of it, we haven't addressed quite yet, but. Oh yeah, I mean, the part, the part and the sound, you know, I've been lucky that I've had this home studio for 23 years. And the bit you can't see just out here is an enormous, uh, it's like a, a church hall in the middle of the house. Now I play in here in the control room, but I have these massive doors open to that large room over there and a pair of mics out there. Now, depending what kind of sound I want, I might use less or more or none of or massive compression of that room will completely affect the way I'm going to play and the parts I'm going to come up with, including sometimes not using any crash cymbals because I know that if I use heavy compression on a live room, the crash cymbals will be unbearable. Absolutely unbearable. So I'll take all the crash cymbals off. I might overdub them if I think, you know, oh, I need a crash there and here. I might just overdub them. But if if that is the sound you're going for, you know, I'm talking about total nuke sound, like a distressor nuke smashed uh, live ambient room, really crushed, then I know from experience that crash cymbals, China cymbals, are gonna are gonna be too much in that kind of compression so i just get rid of all the symbols beautiful so when he presented you with these compositions was it free reign to do whatever you wanted part wise or were there dummy tracks how did you build your parts yeah there were dummy tracks um but i tend not to listen to them especially the first time through i i mute the dummy drum track This would be the same with any session I did because maybe I can think of a better drum part. I've been doing that for the last, what, 41 years as a professional drummer. I've been creating drum parts. Now, occasionally someone who's not a drummer will program something that's actually very interesting. And I think, oh, I like that. Maybe it's just where they've put the, the snare drum or they've they put a tom or something in a weird place that a drummer wouldn't normally do and i think oh i like that i'm gonna steal that i'm more than happy if if the programmed part is great i'm more than happy to play that and um just take the credit for it but (laughs) some most of the time i'm just the first thing i want to know is are they feeling it you know like one two three four or are they feeling it as one two three four are they hearing it as a half-time thing or are they feeling as boom da boom you know i want to know where they think what sort of time base were they thinking of this in and when it gets into fives and sevens and nines how are they where are they put in the 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 uh sort of the picket fence where are they put in the posts in are they putting a post in on the one and then on the seven or they put in the a backbeat on five I just I'm interested to know because probably they've written around that way of playing let's say the pieces in 7 where they're thinking of the snare drums and maybe the bass drum notes I'm interested to see 
I don't always agree with it, but, you know, with someone like Antoine or, or Bruce Sword from uh, The Pineapple Thief, they really just let me do anything I want. Mm-hmm. Other times, producers or artists are a little bit more, yeah, I need it to be double time through that section, the way that I pro- I know you're playing in half time, but I just never thought of that section in half time. So, uh, you, you know, I, I will look or listen. Sometimes I'll do a, a, a take very quickly, almost the second time I've ever heard the piece. I'll just put some headphones on and play through to see what my first reaction is. Because sometimes you will do something on your first reaction that you won't do on your 10th reaction. And I'll save that. I probably won't use it, but I'll save it as reference. Mm-hmm. Three or four hours later, I might be struggling, thinking, I still haven't thought of a good part for this verse. What was the very first thing I played? And then I've got it on, on the computer, and I can listen to it and think, oh, yeah, yeah, actually, that was a good idea. That was the most instinctive, natural first thing I did. Um, so I keep a lot of the old takes, some of them for reference. Sometimes I might even end up using sections of it because it just had you know, some happy accidents. Mm. That's awesome. Um, in the, in the second track, well, the first track you mentioned your fives and sevens. If you know, those of you listening, check out the first track off the record. It's called transmutation circle. I believe that is a quintuplet based groove or five, 16, however you want to think it, but it's definitely some groupings of five happening. Very cool part. Um, you make it sound really slick and comfortable. It took me a minute to realize that those were actually fives. So that was, I think we're getting normalized to the idea of of quintuplet-based groups these days, which is cool. Uh, but I wanted to jump to the second track, Atonic Water. Do you, there's a there's like an illusion happening around the three minute mark. Do you remember what's happening there? Um, I could tell you if you give me a second. Okay, <laughs> I mean I'm mostly curious if that was something you came up with instinctively, or was it c- composed into the tune? I have it as a ticker mark of 320. 320, okay, hang on. Oh, no, no, that is, um, that's a group of seven in sixteenths. Now, something interesting happens, and this is part of, you know, the books that I wrote that you mentioned. And I never think of, I never really think of quintuplet subdivisions. I think of things in five, but if you put, if you play a pattern where the ba- where a bass drum is on the one of the first group of five and the snare drum is on the start of the second group of five, that equidistant bass drum to snare drum starts people it gives the it gives people the illusion that it could be quintuplets because of the distance between the bass drum and snare drum because we've all grown up well many of us have grown up with western pop music when you hear a bass drum on the downbeat and a snare drum on 2 and 4 you your your mind always puts it in that place mm-hmm. even if it's not that you know what i mean if you play the bass drum on one end and the snare drum on two and 
and then the bass drum on three and and the snare drum on four and you've shifted everything along an eighth note the listener will be really pulled towards that being on the one two three and four you know what i mean mm -hmm. this is how an illusion works because you understand what the listener expects and that's why you can do an illusion now that little bit i just played at 320 that is a group of seven really fast but with a bass drum at the beginning of the first seven and a snare drum at the beginning of the second seven and then your mind starts thinking oh is this a new tempo because i'm starting to recognize equidistant bass drum and snare drums and that in my mind always adds up to one two three and four so you can kind of mess with people's minds a little bit and i think what happens in that little solo is i play um a pattern of seven i guess it's seven sixteen it's quite fast bass drum on the start of the first seven snare drum on, on the start of the second seven then i go into five so same thing bass drum on the start of the first five and snare drum on the start of the second group of five and then i think i slow that five down into triplets so it gets pretty weird mm -hmm. so it's just messing with it sounds like a sort of an elastic kind of thing but actually it's all just an illusion built on the subdivision on the fast subdivision of 16ths of grouping them in sevens and fives but in ways that catch your ear like oh hang on what's happened here it, it's just a um it's not really even a metric modulation i guess it's uh it depends how you hear it it could be a metric modulation if you start hearing a new tempo come out of it which i don't if you're the person who is making the illusion you nearly never <laughs> elude yourself you can how do you recover from that <laughs> well you know what i mean if you started playing a straight rock beat a 16th note out you've got to keep your head in the original space or if you start playing groups of seven you can't start hearing it as oh i'm in seven now you've got to keep your mind in the original time base and on the original beats otherwise you'll never find your way out of it now how often do you pull these things out of the bag of tricks with live musicians i would be so scared that that string quartet would just fall apart if i would go oh, do something sure. like that absolutely if i was going to do something like that you know and i did a lot of that sort of stuff in porcupine tree um <clears throat> i do a little bit of it in pineapple thief the we rehearse it i say to the band right this section i'm gonna do this so i'm not gonna surprise you on the night i'm gonna just i'm gonna be always i'm always gonna do this illusion so make sure you're ready and that you know what your part is against that and that you don't lose the time. There was one exception in Porcupine Tree. We used to play a song called Halo and the drums played a 16 bar straight 4-4 rhythm to a, a sort of white noise sequencer. And as the tours got longer and longer, I started putting little illusionary tricks towards the end of the 16 bars because I knew the bass player had to come in on the top of the 17th bar. So it was kind of a joke. Um, you know, it would make him laugh that 
just before he was going to come in, I displaced the beat by a 16th and he would turn round and look at me in horror. <laughs> well, that was just, that was just messing around. Yeah, those, I mean, there were things in Porcupine Tree where we did complex polyrhythms and we rehearsed them. It was all, there was no, you can't surprise someone or you'd have to be playing with incredible musicians who could hang on to their part while the drummer starts doing some really crazy stuff, you know. That's probably not much fun to play bass or guitar through. <laughs> now, are you performing with click trucks a lot of time, or are these not? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, most of the live shows that um, that happen now, I don't know why they happen with a click. Usually, I mean, in Porcupine Tree, it was because we had synchronized films that were written to the music. So they, we had to play to a click. Otherwise the films didn't change their things in time with the band. Um, other bands, you know, there's extra keyboards. There's maybe an extra guitar part, you know, I mean, I tried to keep it to a minimum. I hate going to a show and hearing all kinds of things that I know the performers on stage aren't playing but if it's very subtle, if it's like there's three guitar parts, but there's only two guitarists on stage, then the least important guitar part could be on tape or hard drive or whatever you use these days. Or if there's, you know, two guys singing, but there's a third harmony you need in the backing vocals, then the least important one could go on the backing. It just kind of makes the show a bit nicer. Sometimes there's electronic percussion and things that are obviously sequenced and I'm obviously not playing. Um, they're just effects. So they could be on there too. Final question is a selfish one for me. I've been obsessed with um, in developing precision and accuracy and control for the past decade. And I think you are one of the tops in that. And as far as your sound that you produce is consistent and full super precise and your parts are always clearly articulated i think a lot of people don't know that you use big sticks like i was oh, yeah, i assumed listening to you maybe you're using like small five a's with a small bead tip but your signature sticks are massive mm. which was contradictory to me for precision and accuracy so i need some tips what should i be focusing on to get your sound <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the way, there's two things, the consistency of the timing and the consistency of the sound, I suppose, come under the same mentality. But, you know, hitting the drums in a regular way or hitting the drums in the center or rim shotting the drum almost identically every time does provide a very solid feeling. Uh, I can hear lots of drummers hitting snare drums where almost every hit's a different volume, a different sound, and that doesn't help the groove. The timing thing, yeah, I mean, that's a lifelong battle of trying to make things feel good. Um, I spent probably 20 years trying to play laid back because I was listening to drummers like Jeff Beccaro, Steve Gadd. I just... I couldn't play like that when I was younger. There's no way I could play on the back of the beat. My, you know, it just took forever for me to start to get that feeling 
and really it's a sound it's a it, you're reproducing a sound that you've got in your head a sound of a groove where you know maybe the snare drums laid back and it was just a sound that I'd got in my head that I wanted to have that laid back feel, or at least be able to do that laid back feeling. And I spent, a, yeah, probably 20 years trying to, trying to get there. And then maybe in the last 15 years, I would listen to myself and think, I wish the bass drum was a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. I think I'm laying back on the bass drum. I think I'm playing the bass drum behind the beat a tiny amount. And when I listened to Jeff Beccaro, it always felt like his bass drum was right on the front of the time, almost in front, but right on the very front edge. And then the snare drum was always on the back edge. So it was this beautiful kind of combination of driving and laying back at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, cause if you always lay back, probably you're going to drag and slow down. If you're always on the front of the beat, probably you're going to speed up. And um, so I spent maybe the last 15 years trying to get my bass drum, like move it forward about five milliseconds. (laughs) It's impossible to quantify, but it's a sound. It's a sound. You know, I took Jeff Beccaro's um, instructional uh, VHS or DVD, whatever you call it, and I put it on Logic and I just jumped. I've put markers in where I can just jump to all the bits where he plays. And I just jump from bit to bit. And I hear the way that he lines up, you know, none of it's out of time, but it's just got a leaning. And I thought, I wish my drumming had more of that leaning, especially with the bass drum. And I think it's taken a lot of time, but I think I've got there with the bass drum. Um, You know, it's easy now when you look at... uh, stuff on a on a computer you can literally see how close you are to the bar lines and you can try editing your drums so they're all on the bar line and it doesn't feel as good as when there is a slight twist to it and everyone's got a slight twist everyone's got a different i guess it's your dna of how of your groove and it's and it's recognizable you know you can recognize certain drummers in the first two seconds because of the way they're playing the time. And that always interested me. Uh, I thought if I could get a really nice uh, time feel with a good sound, then that's got to be a winning combination. And I'm often asked in interviews, hey, what would you recommend to young drummers? And I'd say work on your timing and your sound. Those are the two things that everyone will notice all your bandmates will be happy about and people will want to work with you. Don't waste your time doing, you know, triple flam, paradiddle, septuplet, a go-go bell solos, which is what you end up practicing all day long. Um, When if you really focused on getting a good sound and some of that is actually how you play the accuracy of how you hit the drums and your timing those two things will get you so much further than just being super, super fast. That will get you a few kind of likes and wows off a, off a Facebook clip. But, you know, bass players, guitarists, singers really don't want that. And mm-hmm. actually, that will turn them off. If a, if a singer was looking for a new drummer, 
and you had a load of videos out there of you doing crazy, stupid stuff, um, and they typed your name into the internet and found those videos, they definitely wouldn't employ you. <laughs> if they found lots of albums that you'd played on with a nice drum sound, with a nice feel, man, they'll be straight on the phone. That's, the, uh, that's really the key to it. But it's very hard as a young drummer to, to resist the urge to want to explore, you know, the speed and the chop style stuff. And I'm sure I did too. Uh, but, you know, really, with a, if, if you're playing with a poor sound, even all that chop stuff is going to sound crappy with a crap drum sound. Mm. And if it's out of time as well, then that's going to be double crap. But, you know, having a good sound and playing in time is really the two things I would recommend to anyone, including myself, that I could improve. I could improve my sound. I could improve my timing any day of the week. Wow. So that makes me want to, I had, you know, the beginning interview, I said a triangle of sound precision and parts, but I think I'm going to make it now an equation. Sound plus timing equals precision. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny that people think of, of technique uh, that they nearly always associate that with fast. Oh, that guy's got a great technique. They're talking about, Oh, he can do this thing at incredible speed, but actually technique is control. And you need good technique to be able to control the urge to speed up and play too fast. And you need good technique to control the way that you're hitting the drums, the way that, and that will affect your sound. So actually there's like two different versions of technique. Most people, you know, they say, Oh, this drummer has got incredible technique that nearly always equals, Oh, he's really fast. (laughs) really great technique don't hire (laughs) all right Gavin thank you so much for taking the time this has been a master class I'm going to be reviewing this interview multiple times everyone listening go check out the new record by Antone uh, Fafar called Chemical Reactions also check out Pineapple Thief go back to the old Porcupine Tree records check out some of the King Crimson stuff that Gavin's been working on we could spend hours just talking about each of your projects but uh, for today, it's Chemical Reactions, so go give it a listen. And uh, Gavin, thanks for sitting down. This has been awesome. I feel like I owe you a couple hundred bucks for the lesson. <laughs> That's all right, Mike. I've got PayPal. <laughs> all right, I'll send it to you. <laughs> all right, thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, recently um, I did an interview with Mike Dawson on a podcast for Modern Drummer, and uh, he asked me a question about a short solo I played Uh, on a tune called Atonic Water, and this is from the album I made with Antoine Fafard that came out very recently. Um, The album's called Chemical Reactions. Now, um, I thought it'd be interesting just to have a quick look at that solo, so I'll start by playing you more or less, you know, note for note what I did on the record, and then after that I'll show you uh, a breakdown of it.
Okay, so there's quite a few little rhythmic illusions going on in that solo. The uh, ensemble behind me are playing a vamp in 5-4, and they're playing two eighth notes on beat one, two eighth notes on beat three. So it goes one, two, three, four, five. Ba-da, ba-da, da-da, ba-da, da-da, da-da, and so on. Now, for the first four bars of 5-4, using a 16th note subdivision, so it's actually quite fast, I play um, a grouping of seven. And at the start of the first seven, there's a bass drum. At the start of the second seven, there's a snare drum accent. And that gives it the kind of illusion. So I'll play that pattern for you now a bit slower. So let me slow it down. So 16th at this speed. One, two, three, four. After four bars of that, four bars of five, four of that, I play um, a grouping of five. So it's the same idea. At the start of the first five, there's a bass drum. At the start of the second five, there's a snare drum accent. It's just moved those bass drum, equidistant bass drums and snare drums. It's just tightened them up because I'm using a group of five instead of a group of seven. So uh, let's think. One, two, three. One, two, three, four, five. I play that for t actually, I play it up on the ride uh, for two bars of five, four, and then to to really mess with the time, I play that exact same illusion. Uh, that exact same uh, group of five, but in triplet form. So it's like uh, one, two, three, four. So there you can see the three little rhythmic illusions and how they work together in this solo. After that, I just kind of, I follow the melody and the little riff that they're playing and just sort of play a few toms as you can see. Okay, thanks for watching. All right, it's time for the shop talk section. This is Mike Dawson, managing editor at Modern Drummer. And this week I sat down with my good friend, Chris, who's piping in from Switzerland. Chris is the owner and master craftsman at Solid Drums, a newcomer in the boutique handmade uh, industry, inside of our industry. He specializes in stave shell construction using locally harvest woods near him in Switzerland. His drums are fantastic. So I'm super grateful he would take the time out of his day to talk shop with us. And then we are going to drop in some audio of two drums that I recently checked out. Um, so let's get to the interview first. This is Chris at Solid Drums. How did you get into building drums? Well, um, I got into building drums... Um over playing drums, I would say. So I was a, a late, um, I started late 
um, with learning drums. I was probably about 20 or so. So I wanted mm. to try something new. And yeah, it was out of, out of drumming. And um, um, most likely because I'm a woodworker, uh, well, I was a woodworker, and uh, it was the combination of both. So um, trying to build my own drum was kind of the starting point. And I just combined the drummer, uh, the drummer and woodworker thing uh, to this point. But um, I have to say, I'm, I'm probably I am a better woodworker than I am a drummer. So, <laughs> so yeah, but that was the starting point. Why build a drum instead of just buy a drum? Well, I mean. For, I was probably drumming then for uh, about seven or eight years. And I really thought, well, I was always interested in sound and drum sounds. I was actually more interested in sounds than actually in playing. So uh, my drum teacher, uh, Roly, he um, kind of, he seen that I was very into sounds and stuff like that. So he gave me, he gave me like the idea to why do you not build your own snare? And, and I said, well, yeah, maybe I could do that. And then it was, a uh, that was, I followed his idea actually. And then, uh, I, I just noticed how much fun it was to build that drum with all the challenges, uh, it had, uh, it brought with it. So, um, yeah, that was, that was the part. I mean, it just, it wasn't even my idea, I have to say, <laughs> but, um, he's, he's, uh, one of those guys, he always inspires me to build, build new things and try out new things. So that never stopped till today. So that, that was a very nice point as a drum teacher and giving me the idea to build my own drum. Was the first drum a solid drum or was it applied drum? No, it was a, a stave, like a solid drum. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, it was, but I failed miserably. So it, <laughs> <laughs> I was very proud of it. I brought it to, to his drum school and I said, well, I finished the drum. And then um, uh, he kind of played it. I wanted to listen to it and um, he tuned it up. And then um, after about 10 minutes, everything collapsed. Ooh. So the shell <laughs> collapsed. So um it was, I have to say, it was the only and first shell ever that uh, collapsed. So, but um, I was, I was so, of course, I was a bit frustrated, um, but it was actually a good point to start. I thought, well, I can do this better. And this is probably where the woodworking guy came in. I'd say, well, I, it has to somehow work. And um, yeah so uh it's 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 a it's a funny well it's still a funny story i still have it somewhere lying around oh, i was gonna ask <laughs> in, if you still in, have your first drum <laughs> yeah in bits and pieces in bits and pieces <laughs> well that was going to be my next question what mistakes have you learned from in the early stages um i would say of course it's it's uh I mean, I have to say it never stopped till today, but um, in the early stages, probably, I mean, I started with a tropic, uh, like a, a, an exotic wood. Uh, the first one was out of an exotic wood I made from a, a, a decking. Um, and um, that's not what I do today, of course, but I, 
I, I, I had no clue how to, what kind of glue I had to use and, and things like that. So um, probably it was, it was, um, yeah, gluing the glue, which glue to use or, or uh, how to cut the angles. Um, yeah, basically, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically woodworking. So I had, trained that for probably 16 or 17 years till then so mm. uh no not when i started but um till today i would say but uh yeah the early mistakes using the wrong glue don't cu- cutting the angles in yeah in the wrong way things like that mm. bearing edges of course no clue of bearing edges and snare beds um just basically those probably beginner things that every drum builder has to go through it. So how many shells did you ruin before you got a good one? Um, one. Just the first, the first one? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I, I, I mean, the second one I did, I still have it today and it's filled, uh, it's, it's like in my backline. I use it as a, a backline drum. Um, the only thing I had have done different then uh, would have, the, 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 the shell is a bit small, so it's a bit undersized. Mm. And I used tube blocks back then and then um, it's, it's not really very cool to tune. But uh, other than that, um, it started from there. Nice. But I'm, I have to say, I'm still, I'm still, uh, I would say in every drum I make till today, there's something small I would maybe make different or try to, yeah, do better the next time. So mm-hmm. it doesn't stop. <laughs> I thought one of the coolest things you were doing was indicating where you were getting the wood from for each drum. Yep. Um, and you're sourcing locally as much as possible. Is that still the case? Uh, yeah, it is still the case. And it is not. Um, and it's, it's, it goes even deeper uh, today. I mean, it's, it's all locally sourced uh, since, I have to say, since that first drum, actually. The first mm. drum, like I said, was an exotic drum. So, and um, with having a like a wood shop um, about five minute drive from my, from my workshop. Uh, it, it just makes sense to use local stuff. And uh, um, the cool thing is I have some customers from around Maria that, uh, that I can actually get wood from their hometown um, and build projects like uh, the one you see behind you. Yeah. the, that comes that wood comes from the same hometown as the drummer comes, and that's really cool, of course, it only works in Switzerland, but um yeah, I'm still do that today, and it's my way to go i think it's 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 a it's a good we don't i don't need to go and get out the most exotic stuff there's other companies doing that already and and uh, i i like um i like to know where my stuff comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same with food and everything. So it's, it's a whole, like a lifestyle, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And what is the, um, the most popular wood in your area? Uh, probably beach. Yeah, it's beach. Yeah. But it's not very common. Uh, I don't build a lot of beach drums, uh, for customers here or 
around, I'd say more for around the world than for customers in Switzerland, because um, in the 70s or 80s, they made kitchens out of beach and everybody's kind of fed up of the natural beach uh, yeah. color. So um, that's why I don't really use it in a natural way, but I like to I like to stain it and color it. And well, I like everything anyway, but I'd say beach. Interesting. I was going to ask you about the two-tone series, which mm-hmm. is, are they always half beach or is it any, any mixture? Uh, first of all, let's explain the two-tone series and how you came up with it. Well, uh, the two-tone series started as a design idea, actually. Um, of course, like every drum I build uh, that gets, hopefully gets to, to a drum that sounds good in my ears uh it starts with an idea with a design actually it's not a tone or something um it's it's a design and some designs kind of they kind of do what they they sound good or have a character uh which i like and that kind of drum that's why that drum kind of i i do the two tone in in three different variations actually but i 99% of all of those i did so far were uh the cherry beach version mm-hmm. because it had a special character out of all of those uh mixtures i make so it's it's yeah my most selling model so but actually based on design i had no clue how it sounds or how it will sound uh yeah that's basically it. Um, is it always I'm, beach on top or beach on bottom? What is the, the layup? It's always beach on bottom. I okay. want the beach, the harder wood, of course, uh, beach is a bit harder than uh, cherry. So I want a beach. But it makes sense for me that the beach is um, at the snare side uh, because it's harder and mm-hmm. to give it a bit more sensitivity and, uh, it gives a bit of a softer feel when you strike the drum from the cherry above. So that kind of makes sense for me. And um, I never tried it uh, different. So um, it's it's kind of my way. I do it now. So. so what is it about that combination that you think sounds great? I mean, I, I agree. It sounds great. We're going to hear <laughs> the one you sent for me to review here in a minute. But it has kind of everything that I look for in a drum. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what you were hearing that you're like, that's the, that's the sound. Well, to be honest, I sometimes am too close to really make, uh, to really kind of hear. I don't really, I mean, I, every drum that goes out, I test and, and listen to it. And, but sometimes I'm so close. I have people that I work with, uh, good friends and drummers and, um, or professional drummers mostly, and they kind of, when I have a good feeling about a drum, I say, well, I don't say anything to them, but I say, could you give it a test drive? And before it kind of goes into a catalog or, or goes a bit further um, or me promoting anything, uh, it, it kind of runs to through about two hands, uh, very different drummers, and they kind of feedback me and that's probably how I would uh, say I, I would develop um, 
some kind of a, a drum. But um, to answer, actually answer your question is, uh, I think it has the perfect combination of body and like a mid punch. It has mm-hmm. like a, it's it's not like it's it's not like it's not only body. It has a it has a mid punch and uh, it's it's a mid punchy. Thing, and that comes from the beach and the body wise I'd say comes from the cherry so it gives a um, it gives a nice combination of both and um, but it's definitely not for I'd say it's not for a for a small club or something or <laughs> it, it's 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 I don't know if it's loud um, but it's definitely very um, it can go very smacky mm-hmm but um, that probably you would have to you would have to say what you think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's only what I hear. Uh, yeah, that's I would only agree. what I hear. Yeah. I would agree. It has. It's like a focused, punchy, articulate, but not bright sound. It worked well in the studio. I was kind of surprised. I thought it would yeah. be a little bit maybe too too much sound for the microphone, but it captured it really nicely. Again, we'll drop in the the demo of that. But um, so as that's your most you said that's your most popular drum it is yeah it went to be um that was probably a bit of a a, a lucky yeah i don't know if it was a lucky punch but um, i made uh one or two of those drums for guys that are heavy touring in switzerland so they talked to the other drummers and so they kind of all wanted that drum uh, on a professional level um in different sizes but mostly funny enough they all play the same size so uh uh yeah it 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 kind of worked on big stages and in studios very well so it got my most popular model some somehow uh, i didn't really force anything about it so <laughs> now, do you do, a, a, a you do full kits in the two-tone and not yet okay. i if I had the time, if I had the time, um, I, I, I mean, actually that idea is haunting me since, <laughs> since about a year, but I had no time to make something for, for, uh, for the showroom or the, for, for the shop or, or anything else. So I was fortunate enough to be very busy this year. Good. Well, that's good to hear. So what yeah. you do make kits, what do you make them out of? Basically, all the, the woods that I use on snares as well. Uh, but I'd say in kits, the most popular woods used or wood used is walnut. Um, people mm. go for walnut because it's it's very, of course, it's very beautiful wood. It has a, a very nice mellow um, sound. It's it's not very, it's not in your face. It's recorded very well. It looks good, and uh, that's. Yeah, that's probably my most um, used wood on kits. But uh, everything from everything else that I use on snares, I do kits out of. I mean, mm. you can really go even more crazy with kits and stuff. So, um, but it mostly it's mostly to inter. It's 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 most snares are mostly for international buyers or shops, and mm. I build more kits for my for the Swiss uh, customers. Right. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's shift over to the new series that you sent for me to check out the yep. lacquer series. What yep. was the 
point in idea behind developing these. So to explain, it's a, it's a solid shell snare that you are lacquering inside and out. That's what I'm deducting from yeah. it. So explain a little bit yeah. more about how you developed it, why you developed it. Well, that was actually a thing that uh, came from customers, um, like all most of the drums, uh, not the designs, but uh, maybe the requests I get. Um, most, I would say, close to every drummer, some kind of likes maple, uh, more or less, I would say. But um, they would not always be happy with the finish, the natural finish of maple. So. I mean, I do, of course, I do a lot of custom work, but uh, it's also good or nice for, for people that are new to my brand to give them a bit of a, uh, on my website, to, to, to show them that you don't have to go crazy to get a good drum. And uh, that was actually the starting point for, for the maple drum. Um, I love to work with colors and um, it's just one creative thing i just like to do and um i used some of the lacquers since a couple of years uh on on very new on kits uh but i made a couple of snares so i just added more colors and and then i thought well uh, i got some requests for maple and i always had to stain it or color it and lacquer it and everything and mostly it was like a 14 by 6 and then it kind of led to the point where I said well um, it would be cool to have like a standard for a, a bit more affordable price than a custom instrument but still have a, a um, you could still choose from your colors I'm going to add some colors uh, probably to the series because I got a couple of requests so why I lacquered the inside was um, that was like a prototyping thing I did on some kits. And I, I thought it dried out the sound a bit more, took a bit of the harsh overtones that maple sometimes can have or in specific tunings can have. So um, I tested them out. And like I said before, um, I gave, gave them to my, my drum buddies and to check them out. And they said, well, it's, it sounds very controlled for, for, uh, for a maple drum. It's not crazy. It's not like crazy drying out uh, the sound, but um, it does have an effect on it. Like it is different. So, but I thought it sounds different than everything what I do. And so it's, it's for me, that's a point where I think that's, that's cool. And I could make like a small series for for shops or customers that don't know my brand and don't want to go custom, but want to have a, a reliable workhorse drum for many situations. That was my goal with the, the lacquer series. Now, how is it that you're able to make it more affordable? What are you saving? Hmm. What am I saving? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I only use the cheapest wood ever. No, it's, <laughs> no, 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 of course not. No, scrap but um, <laughs> yeah, scrap wood. No, I mean, maple has sometimes if you, if you, I get all the raw boards, of course, uh, it has sometimes it's not plain white. It's, it has 
different colors in it. So I would not really use it because it's hard to match up the grains sometimes um, because of uh, the different colors it, it has. So I use that kind of maple because it's lacquered in and outside. Of course, you won't see it, but it's structural. It's... Um, it's it's fine, so uh, it mm. works good. So it's it's just I just take the I would say the the, the most um, not the cheaper parts, of course. I, I mean I, I pay the same amount as I would for an, uh, another maple, but I'm I just use the maple that I could not use in a in a natural finish. So that's probably the point. Um, actually, there's more work in those, but uh, <laughs> there's more work than in a natural one, but. Uh, I mean, you have to you have to make your living somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no, it's it's. I wanted I wanted to keep it under a thousand bucks. I mean, yeah, all those prices and calculations are are uh, they're diehard. I mean, they're diehard calculations that you do, and and you just say, well, okay, um, this could work, and um, yeah, that's that's probably the point. Awesome. Well, that's, um, I appreciate you taking the time to chat and we're going to check out the audio now. So, uh, thanks for the interview and anyone listening, please go check out some of solid drums. Um, what in the U S you're, do you have some dealers you would recommend? Uh, yeah, I have, um, Brandon from uh, Philadelphia drum shop and, uh, Charles from Mother's music. Uh, companies so those are the two uh i think i think brandon has a good good amount of drums at the moment so yeah those would be the guys uh i would contact if in the states definitely great awesome well thank you chris and uh we're going to get to listen to these drums. thank you thanks a lot all right so we're going to start by checking the six by 14 two-tone series snare so this has cherry half the shells cherry half the shells beach and I'm going to take it through the full tuning cycle. No, no muffling. Um, check out the video if you're watching. If you're only listening to this, the video will show. Um, you know, just, the drum is gorgeous. But anyway, check out the sound. This, this, this is a beast. This is a killer for studio or just all around use. This is the solid two tone cherry beat snare.
Now, this is the new series. This is the 6x14 lacquered series maple. Same quality as all of Sal's drums. Um, as he talked in the interview, he might use some of the pieces that don't have the super prettiest looking grain. So he's he's able to lacquer these inside and out. Gorgeous finish. Save a little bit of money, but don't sacrifice anything on tone. Again, this is another beast. I really love these drums. Um, so I hope you dig them too. After you listen to this, make sure you go check out Solid Drums on the website, follow them on Instagram, check out the dealers that Chris mentioned, uh, maybe request the dealer near you, get one in to check out. Um, I purchased a couple of these over the years and they are fantastic. So thanks for listening. This is the Solid Drums new Lacquer Series 6x14 Stave Show Maple Snare. We'll see you next week.
Thank you, everybody, for watching this week's Modern Drummer Podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode exclusively on Podcast One. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening and watching. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.